Welcome, adventurers. Snare's penchant to move from one troubled situation to another seems to have continued, though it appears as if he has survived yet again. For now. Joel Rigetti's Speaking Stone Studio presents... Tales from the Dungeon Though the tears passed, sleep never found her again. Mela lay quietly until the pre-soul light had turned the nearby trees from a gray to the many shades of early spring. Rianok's hand was still on her arm, though the halfling gently snored behind her. With great care, she moved the hand, placing it on the cleric's gently rising and falling chest. Even in her grief, the mass of fire-red hair made Mela pause. She reached out, brushing a lock from Rianok's face, but quickly drew her hand back as a snort seemed like it would startle her friend awake. Mela backed away carefully. Standing, she pulled her cloak on against the morning's chill. Last night was the longest they had slept since leaving the ruins of Ardisport. They had made the journey from that cursed place to Feld's Crossing in three grueling days, only stopping to sleep for a few hours here and there when they had pushed themselves to the brink of exhaustion each day. They had spent the better part of three days in the city, scrounging for any information they could find on where the Cries de Onander's old temple was, almost getting trapped in a siege as a result. Had it not been for the words of a man long dead, and Sarkeesian's ability to convey the importance of what they were after to the young sergeant at the north gate, well, stranger still was the why they headed directly for this old temple. The morning after breaking the emerald scarab's physical form, Rianok had went apart from the group while they ate a cold breakfast in sorrowful quiet. When she returned, she had the name Crias down and there, and the image of a temple, of a broken gate that led under a hill in the Gimlin woods, somewhere north and west of Feld's Crossing. The quiet breakfast had fallen to complete silence as chewing had stopped, all eyes on the halfling. Sarkeesian asked in a single word, How? Rianuk shifted on her feet, but did not drop her gaze. Cinder, she said after a moment. It was only a beat or two, and then all was a frenzy of packing, and their hectic journey began. A race against an unknown timer. Reading the book that had revealed the nature of what they faced, the best any of them could understand, the emerald scarab would rematerialize 
at the location of this soul anchor, but it would take a number of days. How many that was was not clear, or the circumstances around what determined that were beyond their comprehension. At least one, but possibly as many as ten. Colborne would have been able to figure it out. His absence was already making them less than they had been but a day before. Five days into the trip, with the possibility that their foe was already loose in the world again, looming in everyone's mind, Sarkeesian refused to let any speak of it. We will get there in time, she would say in a tone, and with a look that stopped any further discussion, making it clear she would tolerate no doubt. So they pressed on. It was hope even if manufactured, that all they had done had not been without purpose, that Colborne had not died in vain. Northward they went, as if chased by demons, and in a way they were, albeit they demons that lived in their heads. From Ardisport to Feld's Crossing, and then after exhuming a corpse and talking their way out of custody, let out a barred gate in the night into the face of an army. Ten paces beyond the edge of the firelight cast by the hobgoblin's watchfires, Rianach had gone to work yet again. First she had taken Colfin and Ketri, their forms shimmering from existence. After an agonizing three-quarters of a bell, Rianach reappeared before Mela and Sarkeesian, scaring them both near to death. The cleric chanted again, and all became gray. Mela's usually impeccable sight blurring beyond a range of twenty paces or so. Come along, Rianach said. Colvin and Ketri are waiting on the other side. They had walked north directly at and right up to the enemy line. An odd, monotone arrangement of regimented tents and well-patrolled picket lines. Mela stopped there, but Rianach turned, face drawn in exhaustion, and waved them on. Life with her friends seemed to be a series of experiences, one less believable than the one before. And true to form, Mela would have never believed what happened next. They had walked through the enemy camp, not as in stealthily through, picking their way between tents and soldiers, but through, as in through those tents, through wagons, as if they were ghosts. It was unnerving at first, and Mela kept dodging out of the way of oncoming hobgoblins, stepping around stacks of crates and over campfires. But Rianuk plodded straight ahead in an unerring line, turning aside for nothing, passing through what should have been one solid object after another. At last Mela had given over, and their strange journey was completed. They met up with her companions about a half-mile north of the army. A brief gesture from Rianach's hand, and Keller returned along with Mela's full vision. 
They continued on another bell before taking a short rest, then north further still into the next day, though they stopped early. It was there they had risked a fire to eat a warm meal and sleep the first full sleep they had in days, to wake to this morning. Colfin was rekindling the cook fire. Ketri was nearby the fire as always, awake but not yet risen from her blankets. Sarkeesian stood there as well, a cup of tea steaming in her hands. The three of them spoke in low, concerned tones. Nayla knew why. They had come to the edge of their knowledge, and time was running out. Rianok had learned enough from Cinder to put them on the right course, and the body of old Narn had given them the best directions it could. North a day's travel on the last road, look for the old cutter's trail next to the forked oak. Follow the trail west to the clearing. The old temple lies there. Yet Narn had been in the ground the better part of thirty years. Who knew how accurate his memories were? And albeit slowly, time changed the forest. They had already passed three trails of note, one with a forked tree, in the general vicinity, but it was well short of a day's travel. It was difficult as they had not traveled a standard day, instead breaking the trip into escaping the hobgoblin encampment around Feld's crossing, resting, and then another partial day's journey, resting here, a hundred paces off the road, forty more paces from the edge of the woods. Seven days total, had passed. How many more could they possibly have? One? Two? More than likely, it was already too late. They didn't have the time to bumble around in the woods, chasing down one false trail after the other. And so, the seriousness of the discussion around the fire... Mela joined her friends, squatting to pour herself a cup of tea. She didn't really like the flavor, not without sugar and cream, but it was warm, and the caffeine fooled her body into thinking it hadn't been dragged halfway across the province and beyond, if only for a half-bell or so. Ketri looked at her from across the fire, giving an unconvincing wink, that may have been meant as encouragement. Colfin just poked at the ashes, reaching into his pack for a bag of oats. Gods, help her. When this was over, Mela wouldn't eat oats or dried meat for a long, long time. As she stood, Sarkeesian's hand reached out to give her shoulder a squeeze. Mela looked into her dark eyes. What would normally be pools of calm and reassurance belayed exhaustion and worry. Mela took a sip of bitter tea. She frowned. Back to the trail they had found yesterday, or continue northward, hoping their path lie that way. How in the nine hells were they going to find this trail?
and then a splash of warmth, of light and panic. Snare's eyes snapped open. A ray of soul had found its way through the canopy, through the leaves of the thicket Snare had huddled under to get a few bells of sleep, which seemed to have turned into a few more than that. After leaving the temple, he had immediately turned south into the woods, avoiding the overgrown path that had led them to their doom. As unlikely as it was, the little rogue was going to take no chances when it came to running across anyone, be they foe or supposed friend. Dragging himself out from his uncomfortable resting place, he brushed off a few leaves and clumps of loam before stretching. Despite the approaching morning, it felt as if he hadn't slept at all. Reaching into his bag, his hand emerged a moment later with a handful of dried fruit. Snare's feet were already moving as the food found its way into his mouth. He could have found a spot and holed up in the woods for a few more days, found a stream or a spring, and made good and sure nothing was looking for him. But that was a passive approach. Despite all he had been taught, Snare hated inaction. His mind still struggled with the presence of the hobgoblins within the province. It was possible there was some band unknown to the world dwelling in the old temple in secrecy. But from what he had observed in their abrupt visit, nothing showed signs of long-term occupation. Quite the opposite, in fact. So what in the three's good name was a band of highly organized, militant creatures doing, laying ambushes in some out-of-the-way ruins this deep within the province? He didn't like it. Had the Knoll's Reef been breached? Had the clever hobgoblins found a route through the bristlebacks? Were they looking for routes to attack travelers on the last road? The latter seemed too small scale by his understanding. The problem was, without knowing what state the rest of the province was in, Snare had no real idea where the best course of travel lie, which direction he should go to disappear. With all the unknowns, he decided his best bet was to make his way for the edge of the woods and watch for a time, see if he could learn anything from the traffic on the last road. After that, he could make a choice on what came next. To Snare's surprise, the limits of the forest came sooner than he would have thought, not much past a half-bell since souls rising. In his adrenaline-fueled retreat, he must have covered more ground than he originally estimated during the night. Within a hundred paces of open ground, he slowed considerably, taking care to travel unseen. Twenty paces before the wood's edge, he smelled it. Smoke. But it was not strong. The remnants of a cook fire, possibly. Snare crawled forward until reaching the last tree, making sure to stay within the shadows. He peered out into the cold, bright morning. A hundred and forty paces away, the road stretched to both the horizon on the north and south. Eerily quiet. Even at this early hour, 
There should have been some traffic to be seen. He had but a beat to ponder that before his attention snapped to something much closer, less than fifty paces from Snare's position. A small roadside camp. It was a simple affair. No tents, just the cook fire he had smelled and some bedrolls. What were the cinder-cursed odds? Nearly two hundred miles of road, and he came out within a stone's throw of someone's camp. There was a tall, dark-skinned woman in full plate armor near the fire, talking in a low tone. An even taller half-orc woman with a shaved head stood next to the first, arms extended to the fire for warmth. One last figure was with them. They were much smaller than the others, but from the back, a mass of brown braids and a heavy cloak did not reveal much about who they might be. The look of the first two alone was more than enough for Snare to make a guess. Mercenaries at best, adventurers at worst. Snare had had all the adventure he had wanted for the rest of his living days. He would happily wait until they left. As he did, his eyes ran again over the camp, seeing if there was anything else he might learn. Bedrolls, he counted. One, two, three, a fourth that was lumped up in such a way as to make him believe one still slept. And a fifth, a fifth empty bedroll. Five meant that, his eyes cast about this way and that, and then, much too late, he heard a stick break behind him. Snare spun. A brown, forked beard protruded from a drawn hood. But of more immediate concern was the knocked arrow, drawn to length and trained on him. No sudden moves, friend, came the voice. Why don't you stand up slowly, and we have a quick chat on why you're spying on us? Snare considered running, but only for a moment. The tone of the voice and the glint of the eyes beneath the hood made him quite sure it would be a choice that would not turn out in his favor. Mela could not believe it, but she was considering going in for a second cup of tea. As she crouched down, Colfin became motionless. After all their time together, after all their travels, there was no question. Something had caught the ranger's attention. A few beats, and then he looked up to Sarkeesian. Something in the woods. Sarkeesian nodded in response. Colvin's hand drifted back to his bow and quiver near his bedroll, picking them up. He drew his hood and turned away as he whispered, Give me three bars. He left the sentence unfinished, because finishing was unnecessary. 
If they hadn't heard from Colfin in that time, this small portion of the Gimlin woods would quickly become a much more dangerous place for any that weren't known to them. As Colfin slipped into the woods, Ketri shrugged off her blankets, coming to the fire. Sarkeesian remained where she was and began to talk. If there is something waiting for us, it would be best if it was unaware we knew it is here. So no sudden moves until I give the word. In the meantime, I'm going to keep talking. Nonsense, really. But be on your guard. All this time, and Mela still hated moments like these. Waiting for violence. What if it was her? What if the emerald scarab was already reformed? had sought them out to finish what they had started in Ardisport. One bar. Two. Three. Look lively, Sarkeesian said in an even tone. Mela stood, turning about, her sword coming into her hand. A small figure, arms extended, appeared from the woods, followed shortly by Colfin, bow drawn. Ketri smiled and drew her axes. Sarkeesian held out a hand toward the barbarian to tell her to go easy on the murder vibes, at least for now. Colfin and the stranger approached. A gnome, no hair atop his head, his face, at least that which could be seen above his intricately braided beard, was sallow and dirty. His gray eyes looked as tired as Mela felt. There was more there. Mela looked to Sarkeesian. She could tell their leader saw it as well. There were many things Sarkeesian could have said. So when she said, You look as though you've been through a lot, friend. Maybe you could sit with us at our fire and share a story of your troubles over some breakfast. It's not much but it will be hot. It took Mela aback, as it did their new guest. A few awkward beats of silence in which the gnome's posture remained closed off and tense passed. And then he drew in a heavy breath, and his shoulders slumped in resignation. Time is running out for Mela and her friends, but they have stumbled upon the one person that may be able to help them. Will Snare find his way to aid the province, or will his need for self-preservation win out? Join me next week for the final episode of Yonef's Fate. Here we are, friends, over two years in the making, and next week will be the last full-length episode of Tales from the Dungeon. I truly and honestly cannot thank any of you enough 
for taking the time and energy to support me. Uh, it really means the world. I wish all the best for you and everyone around you in your life, that you may continue to grow and keep winning the battles against your demons and challenges in your life. Uh, and that's that. So do stay tuned for one last final episode of Tales from the Dungeon. <laughs>